Hi everyone, welcome to Sustainable Energy Asia podcast. I'm Yeo. And I'm Ben. Today we're receiving Jay Mariapan, partner at Evolution Environment Asset Management, or EEAM, an asset developer focused on carbon market. We are going to talk about the carbon markets, especially about the voluntary carbon markets. We cover subjects such as drivers of the carbon credit demand and the central issue of the quality of carbon credits. As always, we would appreciate if you could take the time to rate and comment on the show. It helps listeners to find us. Thanks, and on with the show. Hi, Jay. Welcome on the show. You work in the environment and energy for your entire career. What brought you to Asia? And what have you learned working at Syndicatum and Petronas as well? Well, firstly, thanks very much for having me on the podcast. Coming to your question, I started working in Asia in about 2002. I worked for a UK-based renewables company that had an office in India. And I also attended the Delhi Conference of Parties. So I think that was COP8. And we've just recently had COP27 in Sharma el-Sheikh. So that shows my age. Subsequently, I started working on financing some early wind projects in India, and then on carbon financing, including some of the first clean development mechanism projects to be registered in China, which were again wind energy projects. As the work I undertook spread to other countries in South and Southeast Asia, I decided to move properly to Asia in 2008 with Syndicatum. I worked on their project pipeline, which included projects which captured and utilized methane, such as from coal mines, particularly focus on China, landfill gas to energy and wastewater, as well as more conventional renewables. After a decade at uh, Syndicatum in Asia, I joined Petronas based in Malaysia back in 2018 to start their new energy business. In terms of learnings, you know, I came to Asia when markets were relatively early. So firstly, I learned a lot around policy measures and their effectiveness, implementing projects with high standards in terms of what I think people call ESG today, but what we thought of as good practice. So it's high technical standards, health and safety, environmental standards, good buy-in from local stakeholders and benefits flowing to local partners and stakeholders. Secondly, I learned a lot in taking early development risk and carbon finance was used in some of those projects by adding a secondary revenue stream that could potentially be monetized in say US dollars or euros. And this helped alleviate some of the either credit offtake issues that we saw or currency risks. Thirdly, and probably the most important one, actually, I learned some of the cultural differences and characteristics of different markets across the region. It's not uniform. And this including the development of teams that can implement market entry, which be different in those countries and growth. And then finally, as renewable markets became more mature in the region, their scale up attracted a myriad of players, including all local, but also foreign utilities, private equity and infrastructure funds, equipment suppliers, pure play developers, corporate energy buyers, and of course, oil and gas companies. And this is where the sort of lower capital cost players really provided an attractive exit route for those taking early risk. 
So with Petronas, I learned a lot about really how transition looks like in an oil and gas company, the challenges of building a new business within a large corporate, as well as the opportunities it can present through its adjacent businesses, which may be very different from a pure play renewables developer. You just mentioned you were head of renewable energy and Petronas yeah. and also the chairman of Ampus. Before joining the current asset manager at EAM, could you explain what was the appeal to join EAM and what investment philosophy you have? What the appeal was for me to join EAM after having that experience was at a time carbon markets was really a way of helping finance renewables when they were more expensive than alternatives. And during this kind of first stage of the carbon markets until it's sort of relative demise in about 2011 onwards. During that time, renewables became much more mature. And I started then focusing on conventional financing of renewables, which became increasingly abundant. But around, I'd say 2019, 2020, we started to see an increase in interest in carbon markets as more companies set net zero targets and aspirations, including the company I was working for at the time. And the demand started to increase due to the Paris Agreement coming into force. Companies aligning with the Paris Agreement targets. It was a tool for companies to meet carbon neutrality and also product offsetting, such as carbon neutral LNG, cargoes and flights. So the appeal to me to join EAM was really to want to work with some really great people, both within EAM, its advisory board, but also partners. So the people who we would partner with on investment and help scale environmental markets through the raising of funds from institutional and other investors that target environmental commodities. And these are ones that could provide long-term and multiple benefits. So not just emission reductions or removals, carbon credits, but also looking at wider types of environmental commodities which are coming up. For example, we heard there was a biodiversity COP recently, and we see the proliferation of things like biodiversity credits, plastic credits, and others coming up in the near future. So I really wanted to kind of be on that vanguard of linking institutional investments to these environmental commodity markets, which we see being very scalable in this future. It was a definitely interesting move to focus on that. And the subject of today, as you said, is the carbon markets. We'll talk yeah. first about compliance markets, but then we move into voluntary markets. And I think we'll really focus on voluntary markets because that's really your specialty here. But yeah. I think it helps just to give a sense of what is compliance markets. Could you explain what are the two main compliance pricing mechanisms? So I'm thinking about carbon tax and ETS and what are the percentage of green gas houses emission? Yep. they are covering right now and in which jurisdictions they apply, if you can give some examples. Sure. Yeah, I think then, as you mentioned, the kind of two direct carbon pricing instruments that we have, carbon tax, which is essentially where a government levies a fee on greenhouse gas emissions. By doing that, it provides an incentive to lower emissions. So the government determines the price and the sectors or companies that are liable for the tax, and the market then determines the level of emission reductions that are incentivized. Carbon taxes have been implemented, of course, in Singapore, as we all know, but also in countries as diverse as South Africa, Canada, Chile, Ireland, and Sweden. And prices have ranged from $1 per tonne going up to $137 per tonne, which was in Uruguay. 
The second one is an emissions trading scheme. And this is really essentially where there's a limit or a cap is put on the total volume of greenhouse gas emissions in specific sectors of the economy. Particularly, these are the most carbon intensive sectors such as power, iron and steel production, refineries, etc. A government then issues or auctions tradable emission allowances to the entities covered by the cap. And each allowance gives them the right to emit a certain volume of emissions. And then the entities will need to surrender their allowances for their emissions during the compliance period. So companies then have a choice. They can meet their cap through keeping emissions in check or reduction measures or by purchasing additional allowances. And of course, they can choose to sell surplus allowances. And essentially, this type of scheme is called cap and trade. There's a slightly different type of emissions trading scheme, which is baseline and credit system. This is where covered entities can earn emission credits by producing lower emissions than the actual baseline. And these can be traded around. And these systems include intensity standards and tradable performance standards. Again, with emissions trading schemes, there's a very diverse set of countries and regions that have implemented ETSs, including EU, China, certain states of the US, such as California, and then South Korea. But more, as we see going forward, there's quite a number of countries that are announcing that they want to do emissions trading scheme, including in this region. In terms of schemes, there are around 37 carbon tax schemes across the world and 34 emissions trading schemes, and coverage is around 23% of total global emissions. That is really a good overview of the compliance markets. So now if we move to voluntary markets, could you just yeah. define what are voluntary carbon markets in comparison of compliance markets? Sure. One of the main differences, we spoke about compliance markets, which are regulated by government. Voluntary markets are really where individuals or entities choose to purchase credits. So it's a choice. It's not an obligation to support their climate commitments. We always say it's choice and it is voluntary, but that's becoming less of a choice because once you announce these things, you are watched, you have stakeholders who are looking for action. So what was really voluntary may be actually becoming kind of semi-compliant in a way. But essentially each credit, which corresponds to one metric ton of reduced, avoided or removed CO2 or equivalent greenhouse gas, can be used by the company or the individual to compensate for emissions of, of one ton of CO2. And when a credit is used like this in the voluntary market, it's moved to a, a registry for retired credits and it's no longer tradable. So it's essentially going out of the system, it's being retired and it's used to compensate for emissions elsewhere by that individual or company. That's something else about voluntary markets and compliances. They're not mutually exclusive. So there is some overlap between them and project-based credits from the voluntary market can be used within some of the compliance markets or emissions trading schemes or tax schemes. For example, in Singapore, companies can meet up to 5% of their obligation through buying credits from certain standards, including Vera Gold Standard or GCC, for example. South Korea, you can also use some project-based or convert some project-based credits into that system. California is a big scheme, which also has an offset scheme. We often talk about things that they're very separate, but I think over time we will see a lot more 
overlap between the two markets. That's interesting. And you've explained quite well at the beginning that there is a compliance market basically imposed by the regulation government, whereas voluntary is driven more by corporates. So yeah. I was wondering if you could talk about the development of corporates' climate commitment and how this has translated into the development of the voluntary carbon markets. Sure. So I think putting compliance markets aside and the project-based routes into those, I think in the early days, companies utilized voluntary carbon markets to really help them with carbon neutrality. So each year they would calculate their emissions, usually scope one and scope two emissions and scope one emissions are those direct greenhouse gas emissions from sources controlled or owned by a company. Scope two are indirect and associated with the purchase of electricity, steam, heat, and cooling. So they would either reduce those through internal measures and then offset the remaining emissions through the purchase of credits or even renewable energy certificates, for example. So that's really what most companies did in the early days. Then they took this further by setting actual targets for emission reductions and applying a strategy to meet those reductions through internal measures and offsets. Companies then began aligning with Paris Agreement, including setting science-based targets in line with efforts to keep within one and a half degrees. And then there's really the proliferation of net zero carbon targets, which really meant that companies who set those targets had to look through everything that they did. The cost of meeting that targets became a big issue. So they could cost out all the reductions that they could do internally over time. There's only so many things that you can do within a budget and also within time constraints. And so the use of voluntary markets then became a main tool that could help meet those targets. And then we see people going further than this. So scope three emissions start to be looked at as well. These are indirect emissions associated with transport and distribution of products, processing of sold products and use. Companies can participate in voluntary carbon markets, either individually or even as part of industry-wide schemes. But one example of this is the carbon offsetting and reduction scheme for international aviation, Corsia. So this was set up by the aviation sector to offset its greenhouse gas emissions. And all international operators taking part in Corsia have all pledged to offset all the CO2 emissions they produce above a 2019 level. And they can use a certain category of carbon offsets from the voluntary market. The way that corporates engage with voluntary markets is still changing. So there's a lot of different approaches. Some actually say we don't want to use offsets. Mm -hmm. Some say we want to use offsets for scope one, scope two, and then we want to encourage investments that reduce scope three. That's interesting. So when some corporates say they don't want to use offset, does that mean that they just want to implement strategies to reduce a scope one to three and not using any offset to achieve their goal? Yeah, I say this is still the minority because it's easier said than done to go fully net zero without doing anything in the voluntary market. And it also depends on what kind of time frame, what technologies are available and what industry that you're in. But yes, essentially some are saying we want to do all in-house. Some are taking the approach where they'll do all the in-house reductions that they can, and then they will use carbon credits, such as removals, for whatever remains. But they kind of do it at the end. Others will say, we'll do all the reductions we can internally, and any that we can't do, or any that we haven't done on an ongoing basis, we'll offset. So still, still quite a range. 
So you explained it quite well where the demand of carbon credit arise is really driven by uh, corporate commitments to achieve the net zero target. And this can be in the energy or in the oil and gas or transport sector where it is really hard for companies to decarbonize. And if we look at the supply of the carbon credits, there's a multitude of approaches that we can use to remove carbon from the atmosphere. And so I'm a bit curious about how you would categorize them and what are for you the main type of carbon credit in the markets? Yeah, there's more than 170 different types, and that's increasing, but they cover a number of different sectors. So let's take forestry and land use, renewable energy, household and community, chemical and industry, energy efficiency, waste disposal, agriculture, transport. They're the main ones, but there are obviously some others as well. And then these sort of different types can be categorized into two main types, which is emission reductions, include capturing and destroying carbon or avoided emissions, i.e. that is preventing carbon that would have been released to the atmosphere. And then secondly, removals where greenhouse gases are sequestered and stored either naturally, for example, through trees or by technology such as direct air capture technology and storage underground. It's definitely a complex range of activities that can be done. Yeah. And do you feel that corporate who are purchasing those credits have a good understanding of all the different type and the characteristic of these carbon credits? No, I mean, generally I don't, but some have been doing this for quite a long period now. So they may start with using outside advice or partner with people who have that capability. And then some of these large purchasers actually look to build internal capability as well. So over time, they do get to know, but a lot of those that are starting off today or more recently, I really don't think that they would have that ability to understand the difference. It's reasonably complex. Yeah, it's a developing market and there's a lot of things happening in this market. I guess a big issue with carbon credits is they are very heterogeneous, as you say. They are like 100 plus types and uh, and they have very different characteristics. A few common qualities for carbon credits that needs to be established for me are measurement verification, durability or permanence, and additionality. So I'll just define them and then we can discuss about them. So measurement verification basically are whether we can verify that the credit is doing what it's claimed it is doing, and that is removing or reducing the carbon in the atmosphere. On measurement verification, what are the methods generally used to measure the project's carbon impact? To start with every voluntary emission reduction program, you must firstly determine a baseline or the reference level on which you would calculate any emission reductions or removals. These are the, the assumptions upon which these baselines are established and the accounting methodologies used to calculate emission reductions or removals. These vary by sector and program scale. You, in the design of your project, you need to set up a an MRV plan So monitoring, reporting, and verification. And so that once your project activity is underway, data is collected and processed to calculate emission reductions achieved against the baseline and during the monitoring period. And the monitoring period is just the amount of time that you set before you would then report and verify emission reductions. So depending on the the program, data collection could be just tracking the operation of a device. Let's say this is for 
clean cook stoves, for example, in power generation or renewables, for example, this could be just meter readings or for nature-based or forest projects, it could be changes in tree cover over time. These are the types of NRVs that, that could be done. Other impacts as well, so not just the emission reductions themselves, but other impacts would be also included in this MRV program. These could be the impacts on sustainable development goals, for example. But essentially, this is an area which EAM really focuses on when we look at investments and work with our partners. So then finally, emission reduction results are then compiled into a report. These are subject to a third-party verification. This is an entity that's accredited per the requirements of the standard to be used. And these verifiers need to sift through large volumes of data, well-documented results, and ascertain really whether they are accurate, transparent, and compliant with the standard itself. Once those have been verified, the standard setter then certifies them, and then they can be issued to a registry, and from then on, they're tradable. The second characteristic that we're going to talk about is durability and permanence. They mean how long the CO2 reduction lasts. As for some natural-based solutions, such as tree planting, might not be very durable. I was in France during the summer, and France had a lot of fire. And it was said at the time, this summer, there were like maybe 10 or 20 years of tree planting carbon credit that was burned. So, so there are for sure some questions about the durability of these type of assets. So uh, on the durability, what is the current state of the protocol to ensure durability? Are there any gold standard in this matter? And why is durability important? I think, as you know, carbon dioxide can stay in the atmosphere for a very long time. Eventually, it will, most of it will dissipate, but at least a quarter of it will hang around for hundreds of maybe even thousands of years. So what most high quality standards will look at is trying to define permanence at least for 100 years. So that's how it would define it. Some may say that's not long enough, but it's at least a period where you can be sure that at least the majority of it is permanently removed. Still, there may be a quarter that's kind of left. But then once you've defined that as 100 years, practically, how do you actually achieve it? Given that, you know, projects are shorter in time frame, people are not really around for that long, so it has to go on for generations. So different standards have taken different approaches to that. And some are more controversial. And as you mentioned, some have more gold standard towards the way they approach it. So maybe I talk about a couple of different approaches. So there's Climate Action Reserve. It's a US-based voluntary program. So they're taking two different counting methods to deal with this. The first is a ton-ton accounting approach to permanence requirements. So this is where a credit is issued for every additional ton that is sequestered permanently. And here the developer needs to demonstrate that this is all technically correct and feasible over the time period and that they can ensure that this is going to be done for 100 years. So contractually that they have the means on the ground to be able to do this. That's a tough requirement, but that's what they would have to do. The second approach is a ton-year accounting, and this is where basically a pro-rata share carbon credits for each successive year that the carbon is sequestered. 
So essentially, this ton year would see credits awarded only for a small proportion of each ton per year. And then you take sort of a different approach, which is maybe the gold standard, where they eliminate red projects. So these are the projects that reduce emissions and deforestation, and forest degradation. So they basically go, look, there's too much uncertainty around baseline setting and leakage. So we don't do those at all. And instead, they sort of allow projects that don't cut down trees to make room for new plantations. And so for permanence, what they do is they fix a 20% contribution to a buffer pool. And essentially 20% of those credits need to be built up in the buffer, buffer pool over time. And at the end of the crediting period, you don't get those credits back. They remain in the pool so that let's say a forestry project, which may go for 40 years, for the remaining 60 years, the buffer pool will remain in place. And if there's a fire, for example, it can be used against those sinks or sequestered carbon that would actually have gone back into the atmosphere. I guess you still need people also to ensure that it is actually implemented over 100 years, for example, right? That's quite challenging yeah. as well. The last quality we're going to talk about is additionality. So additionality is it basically that the sale of the credit is allowing carbon reduction and does not finance something that would have happened anyway. An example of it might be some of the projects in India have been selling carbon credit, whereas they have already been in operation for five years. And essentially, the projects are not additional because the amount of money that's been receiving from the carbon credit is not really allowing any reduction. And on this additionality aspects, how it is possible to ensure the additionality of a project and how can additionality be established for most carbon credits available on the markets? Yeah. When you look at additionality, you're talking about at the project planning stage as you go towards financial close. So it's a snapshot in time that you need to prove additionality. So some of the projects that you're talking about now, renewable energy projects, grid connected when I started out 20 years ago, were additional from a financial additionality perspective because they were maybe five or nine times more expensive than they are today. And now they're coming down at very, very cost competitive. And sometimes there are policy incentives still for them as well, where they wouldn't normally meet that criteria. But additionality is by definition difficult to prove because you're essentially trying to prove something that may happen in the future or may not. So there's a few different ways of doing this. Financial additionality, as I mentioned, and that's basically trying to show that project without carbon revenues is not meeting an industry acknowledged hurdle rate. And that carbon finance or carbon revenue is helping them get over that hurdle rate. I think that's always a difficult one to prove. Unless carbon is your only revenue, then it's very clear. Then you have ones like barrier analysis that's used positive lists where you essentially say, look for simplification purposes. Any project in this area and this sector is additional because it's not business as usual today or we've assessed it in the country and we know that it needs carbon finance to happen. So that's sort of positive lists. And then you have things like technology penetration thresholds. So they could say, for example... Renewable energy projects that are being developed in, in some of the less developing countries where it's not so prevalent. Maybe there's a threshold for the first 5% of projects that are deemed additional. So they have very different approaches. There's still a controversial area. It still requires refinement. It does need practical solutions because I think from a project developer perspective and an investor perspective, you want to have certainty that the assessment that's done holds for at least the period of time that a project works 
would run for at least the crediting period. I might sidetrack a little bit, but I was just wondering what is your take on the application of blockchain technology to the carbon markets? Because there are a couple of companies working on blockchain and carbon markets. But I personally feel that the issue with carbon markets, and as we discussed, is really an issue of the quality of the carbon credits. And it seems to me that a blockchain isn't really solving that issue. So I was just wondering, what is your take on that matter? Sure. You hit the nail on the head. There's a lot of companies that have set up or new companies that have been set up with a remit to apply blockchain to carbon in some way or another. Sometimes it's trying to make a solution or something is not necessarily needed, but I think there's a few areas where it is useful. So we talked earlier about MRV. The application of technology for MRV is getting better and better. So for example, if you looked at land use change over time with forestry, for example, you can obviously do a lot with field surveys and the pretty accurate. But once you start to put in digital solutions for this, utilizing uh, satellite data and remote sensing, it becomes very good. Now, applying blockchain for timestamping and verification of the source of this data, that kind of adds a little bit level of security and maybe transparency to their MRV process. If you look at areas where companies want to know the projects that they're buying offsets from, what is the history of it? Who has made retirements? What were all the documents kept? All of that. I think there's sort of some areas around blockchain that are being applied to the, let's say, transparency and trusted nature of documentation. But I think The bit that's been more controversial is where they've tried to tokenize carbon credits, which is supposed to have been give users more transparency and trust, but I feel has led to less transparency and trust in many ways. Yeah, exactly. And I think with carbon credits, is, since the quality are quite different, the prices are really, really different. And at the end of the day, it's really the quality of the project that is important. That's right. I mean, in a sense... We say one ton equals one ton. That is due to avoided and its impact on climate change. That's true. But then from the point of view of how that ton was produced becomes very important. And we even find today, and this is an area that EAM is going into a lot more, is that the ton may be a byproduct of what is essentially a more of an impact focus. Mm. So let's say the real aim here may be to provide energy services to poorer households in rural areas. And that's where the main impact lies. And the core that we focus on is that impact. they do happen to reduce emissions against other fuels, but that may be secondary. And that may be kind of how a corporate might focus on it as well. So although the use of blockchain, I think it has uses in areas of trusted documentation for data, transparency, some of the other valuable parts of it, I think maybe are overplayed. So now let's talk more about EAM. Um, We're actually quite interested in EAM's market position and strategy, especially as an asset manager in pertaining to the value creation of carbon market. So I think overall investment philosophy, our main goal is to generate significant risk adjusted returns for our investors that not only drive large scale decarbonization, but also maximize social and environmental impact. That's really our overall aim. Within that, we have three key areas in decarbonizing the world that we think has powerful benefits. So these are nature-based solutions with high biodiversity impact. So if you think about all of the biodiversity hotspots around the world that are under threat, there's a way here of 
sequestering, protecting carbon within the ecosystem, but also preserving biodiversity. There's been community-based projects with high social impact. And I mentioned here before, there's still significant parts of the world population who still do not have access to clean, modern services. And those services cover a lot of things, including health and utilities and, and other things. So that's the second. Third is high climate impact. So if you think of particularly areas around methane, for example, it's a high global warming potential. It gives a lot of bang for the buck in terms of its climate change mitigation. And there are solutions that can reduce, avoid, or remove large amounts of greenhouse gases through that. So these are the three main focuses of what we do. And this means partnering and aligning with developers who want to design and build projects and portfolios with high integrity and quality whilst delivering this impact over the long term. So essentially, we, we see ourselves trying to catalyze finance in helping scale up in some of these areas. And could you talk about the concrete project you're working on right now and, and its expected impact on the climate? Sure. Obviously, it's still quite early days for EAM, but I think one of the projects that we're doing already, it's a long-term investment, so we're looking at over 10 years. We're working with a partner who has been really doing this for a decade or more, so delivering services to some of the 2 billion who do not have access to to clean modern and affordable energy services for cooking, for lighting, and for other energy uses. So that the organization has already delivered impact to over 6 million households in parts of South Asia, and now is looking to scale up with use of different technologies. So they've done, for example, improved cook stoves, solar lights, gravity water filters, but now they want to kind of extend to look at other technologies which households are really looking to use. So. For example, some of these areas have now become grid connected and instead of improved cookstoves, which might still use biomass, they want to use induction cookstoves, which use electricity. So there's kind of as households go up the energy ladder, let's say, to use more modern and efficient fuels, how we're working with them is really providing long-term security of carbon revenues, as well as financing some of the new projects within their portfolio. They have impacted so far 6 million households. We want to help them impact 60 million. Wow, that's very ambitious. Thank you, Jake. Thank you.